You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. We do two episodes a week. So our first episode is Training Tuesday, where we dive into like a training topic specifically. Uh, A long version of your 60-second brain bombs, Matt. Nice. And then uh, Friday is like our long format person of spotlight interview. And we actually did. So we, we had dreaded not dreaded but we had put off the nutrition training tuesday topic until this week so we finally dove into it and then i saw a post or two of yours and i thought like god if there's anybody we should chat with to follow up our you know surface level conversation would be mr matt mosman because you're kind of a super genius that way oh boy i don't know about that but yeah i appreciate the opportunity this should be this be fun so we talked a lot about how nutrition is like the day-to-day nutrition no matter which way you go with it is not nearly the the performance boosting miracle drug that a lot of people portray it to be Mm. like if you switch from vegan to paleo or paleo to ketosis or however it's going to be that like you don't change from a c level athlete to an a level athlete Oh, that that's not true. The movie Game Changers told me like if I became vegan. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's exactly it. Um, you know, outside of medical issues, if you solve a medical issue, you might you might level up. But yep. that we our stance was that your morning of breakfast, your in race fueling of all the nutrition you could do probably is the biggest actual performance changer outside of like oh, my, I'm gonna change my micros. Like I think you would get a bigger boost. Kirk said it off sleeping more or training more than you would on going into ketosis but that what you do during and pre that's a that's something worth diving into and 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 we didn't want to say that nutrition's bad like from a health standpoint everyone should be diving into it but we didn't want people to think that like there's this magical cure-all fix that you're going to just like explode after you do it um and and we want not to tell you where to go with that but we wanted you to know what we talked about first and really like tell us we're wrong or tell us we're right. But like, you are the expert now. We had our say. We want to balance out what we talked about opinion wise with what someone who's an expert would do. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes, that makes sense. I can form some thoughts around that where I won't, where I won't hopefully piss too many people off. <laughs> All right. We don't care. Like this is your profession. Like you are yeah. allowed to speak in absolutes. Yeah. Okay. And we and we might have we might have rubbed a few people sideways yet uh, with our Tuesday episode, anyways. So, uh, yeah, it's a matter of opinion, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'll be I'll be I'll try to be nice about it. <laughs> so so I guess I I like your preface back into the conversation, but I kind of want to just go I want to go back and start from the beginning with you, Matt, because I, I guess I don't know where your love for nutrition supplementation, your whole business, like where did that start? Okay. How did that start? We'll start there and then we'll work into our own thoughts. Typically with our athletes that we interview, we are like, take us back to when your athletic journey started. Okay. And if your business stems from your athlete journey, like feel free to start as, you know, peewee baseball or whenever you pick up your path. Okay. Yeah. I feel comfortable talking about that. I got, I got a pretty good story. I want to hear it. All right. (laughs) 
You want to hear it right now? Yeah, why not? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So basically, like it all started back in high school. Uh, my dad really pushed me to play basketball and baseball and wrestling because those are really uh, more traditional sports that he grew up with. But like after a year and a half of doing that and realized that I sucked at it, like just because I'm I'm a scrawny guy, like I can't play those sports. I have I have zero coordination. Like I can run and I can bike in a straight line, and that's about it. I'm like, man, I've had enough of this nonsense, <laughs> and like just the way I'm built, like I hate sucking at things. So my dad tried to get me motivated and he's like, you know what you should do? You should run track. And you know what? There's this two mile record at Kemper High School in Carroll, Iowa that has stood for like 60 years. And the record was like nine minutes and 36 seconds for the two mile record. And like at that instant, like something just clicked. And I really, really wanted this two mile record really bad just to like make my dad proud and then to see if I could actually do it. So like, Literally the day after that, I started running, and that first month just absolutely sucked. But after I got out to that first month, I was like, I'm just going to run 20 miles a week. And then, then it got to be 30, 40, 50, 60. And then like when I hit my prime in high school, I was running probably 120 to 140 miles a week consistently. Whoa. Holy and, smokes. Uh, yeah, I've always been a high mileage guy. I've always, I've always run my best off the high mileage uh, for various reasons. But my junior year of high school – I got invited to the Drake Relays, which is like Iowa's premier track and field event for the high school two-mile invitational. And like, there's only like 16 guys that qualify for it. And I'm from, you know, I'm a hick from Carroll, Iowa, competing against like the big city boys that are, you know, really, really good. But the goal there was to break the two-mile record. So went there, had a great race. Uh, I ran like a 932 for the two-mile, broke the school record. And then just kind of my whole endurance journey took off after that. So going into after high school, I uh, went to go run for Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska on a cross country scholarship. I uh, competed well there. I, you know, I wasn't great. I was good enough to win a few meets, uh, usually placed in the top 10, performed well and whatnot. But, you know, during this time was really instrumental when I got involved with like nutrition and supplementation. I had the opportunity to study underneath a guy, his name was Dr. Jeff Stout, and he's kind of like a pioneer in supplement research. So he was one of the first guys to study creatine. So I got involved with him and just got involved in a, in a ton of clinical research, testing, you know, supplementation and nutrition strategies for all different types of athletes. And I just, I found this absolutely fascinating how the way you ate, the way you trained, things you could supplement could, you know, affect performance in, in, in various ways. And that really stuck with me, not only for myself, but again, I mean, just applying this knowledge to myself and other people was something that really fascinated me. Like before I met this guy, like I wanted to be a physical therapist or a doctor. I'm like, that would be really boring after studying this. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I studied underneath him. And then after, right after college, um, I got a bunch of different certifications and all this stuff. I went off to get my master's and I went to go work um, as an exercise physiologist at Union Pacific Railroad for a while, which which was great. But I really wanted to get back to doing the clinical research um, with nutrition and supplementation. And I had an opportunity uh, to go work for a company called Muscle Farm in Denver, Colorado. And these, this was one of the first supplement companies to to sink a lot of dollars into research and development. So I was a a research scientist there for about oh, two or three years coming up with formulas, uh, running a bunch of different studies. And then one day I was just like, you know what? 
I'm tired of giving my best ideas away. I'm tired of like doing nutrition and supplement uh, formulations or giving advice to like the bodybuilding, you know, meathead crowd. I'm more of an endurance athlete. So I was like, you know, like, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm going to do my own thing. Um, so I went out, I consulted for a while for more companies. And then I eventually that all culminated with uh, forming Endure Elite in uh, April of 2017. So that, that's the whole backstory. That was a pretty concise backstory, actually. You got us there pretty quick, but I have some cur- I have some curiosities about some nuances along As the way. As do I. Yeah, you just glossed over a few things. Yeah, I think I think what you know, people maybe in our sport and in our industry look at you as the the supplement and nutrition guru, which you are. But I think a lot of merit is built with your athletic background, coming from someone who's lived it. You know what I mean? So. Um, can we dive in just a little more into your athletic career just real quick? I mean, yeah, this is your time to let us know because I've listened to a few podcasts that you've been on in the past, and I don't think we've dove into that a whole lot. So what did you specialize in in college? What were your events? Um, what were your highest successes? Nine thirty-two 32 in high school is very quick. Fast. Yeah, I, I'm curious to hear how you how you fared in other distances once you got to college, <laughs> since they don't run the two mile. No, they don't. So in, in college, you know, the distances for cross country were either at 8K or a 10K. And this this was cross country. Like, I never touched a track, really, after high school. So, like, for an 8K, I was a 24.05 guy. That was my PR in the 8K. 10K, I was That's uh, quick. You would have smoked both of us. That's on a, that's on a, that's on a cross course. That, yeah, yeah that, that's on a cross course. You know, granted, this was, you know, 40 pounds lighter and, and 20 years ago, roughly. But yeah, uh, low 24 guy, high 29 guy for the 10K. And that's what I really focused on. But right, cross country, you, you broke 30 and cross. Yep. Yep. Flat course. Do you, so. do you suddenly feel inadequate, Bracken? <laughs> of course. Of course I do. <laughs> Yeah, Matt, you were you were the real deal. I yeah, I don't know. Running has always been my jam. I like I'm not like I'm not naturally gifted. Like I just I just busted my ass on something I really really enjoyed, and I think that plays a, a huge part in. Like I was willing to suffer a lot more than other people on the day to day grind, and then you know during a race and things like that. So yeah, that was cross country, and then <laughs> during uh, like off season. Uh, which is this is a total NCA violation. I would go and like cherry pick like uh, 10K races and half marathons and marathons and you know support my my college tuition and be able to <laughs> stuff like that. Which eventually I got busted by the NCA uh, for that. I was like, oh, I didn't know you couldn't accept prize money, and you know got a little slap on the wrist and whatnot. You can now. What's that? You you can accept up to two thousand dollars now. I know. I wish I Crazy. wish I was like that back then. That would have been awesome, but. Yeah. So yeah, I ran during college. I was, like I said, I was good enough to win a few meets, usually in the top 10. And then after um, college, I went to go run for a shoe company as a, I don't know, semi-pro for a while. And I did that for a while. And then eventually when I got into my thirties, I was like, you know what? I'm kind of tired of like just grinding out all these miles. And I was tired of being like 125 pounds and hungry all the time. So I was like, I'm just going to kind of lay low and do some other things for a while. So. Did, did Creighton not have track? Nope, Creighton did not have track, which was kind of one of the appealing things for me. Like, I, track is fine, but it, it, you know, running around a circle for, you know, eight laps, or if I were to get like into a 5K or 10K track race in college, I, I would have went nuts. It's, yeah, not my, not my deal. 
Oh, that was going to be my next question is, did you regret not being able to hit some times in the classic events, but mentally just didn't appeal to you, huh? Not at all. Like, I don't know. Something's really raw about cross country and like road racing, as opposed to like something like, I don't know. I just felt the track was way too strict. Like you run X amount of laps and it just, it was really boring to me. Not, not, not to diverge from this conversation too much, but you said you were sick of running and hustling so much and being hungry and skinny all the time and all those things. Did you find like, cause I'm in, I'm in my late thirties now, Brack and you're 32. Do you find that like that sort of, 33 my bad yeah uh, did, give me my credit my bad did you uh did you find that like training that hard when you were starting to build your life like just became like too like your bucket started overfilling a little bit or were you able to sustain everything at max capacity life family work running no i mean it was it was hard i mean i kept it up for like two years but it just it really gets to be too much and like unless you're like for running unless you're like at the top 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 tier of your game you're not going to make a lot of money for it like i think my best year i made like oh i probably like 30k and it just it wasn't enough to justify sacrificing other things like for me my my family my kids um you know career aspirations and things like that like i'm 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 totally happy that I did it for a while because it shaped a lot of things about me, like my work ethic um, and just like dedication and determination just to get stuff done. But when I got into my thirties, like competing at that high a level and doing, having to do the work to do it, like it, it just wasn't appealing to me anymore. And I just, I hated going out to go run and train. And I, the second I, I told myself like five years before that, the second it ever gets to that point, like I'm done. Mm. Um, so, and you know, I'll, I'll still run like 40 or 50 miles a week now, but no, you know, more it's like that and maybe lift weights and, and mountain bike and stuff like that. Like, um, you know, if I want to get into a competition, I can still throw down, but like competition isn't my main objective anymore with, with training. It's just honestly to keep my girlish figure. <laughs> did you, did you, uh, did you actually pursue racing? Like with most of your focus for a while then as a career? Yeah, there was there was two years where all I did was just run, and it oh. was it was a great two years. I mean, that's when I set all my PRs because I mean, honestly, what I'd do is I'd wake up, I'd eat, I'd go run, I'd come back, I'd eat, I'd take a nap, I'd go out and train in the afternoon, I'd come back and eat, watch a movie, and go to bed and and repeat. <clears throat> did you stay high mileage then throughout college, throughout uh, semi professional professional life? Yeah. Yeah. But basically like just looking back at my running logs over my career, like my average weekly mileage was probably like 110 to 150 miles, 115 miles a week. And yeah, that, that interferes with real life if you want to do both. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's it's like, that's what a lot of people don't realize. Like to become like a top caliber athlete or to become competitive at a high level, it's, it's not easy. You, you have to put in the time. I don't care how genetically gifted you are. Well, for the most part, like you got to do the hard work. You know, I say it myself a lot. Running is one of the best sports to try to do as a hobby because like, it's really hard to train more than two hours a day as a runner, you start to break down. But the part I generally don't acknowledge and I don't hear a lot of people acknowledge is that if you do train two hours a day, it also compromises like the next eight hours of your day Yep, because <laughs> you're recovering and you're doubling and you're net, you need to nap. Or if you don't nap now, you can't, it's, it's more than just the 12 to 15 training hours. There's another 20 to 30 of, of just plodding around your life, wasting time between runs that happens. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of sitting around that happens <laughs> honestly mm-hmm. afterwards. Cause I'm like, you, you can't like train that hard 
and recover optimally, like, you know, training that hard and then going off to like uh, an eight hour workday where you're on your feet all day, or you have these other acti activities of daily living that are really laborious that can, you know, compromise your recovery for like a key workout or training session the next day. You just, you just can't do it. And I'm like, I don't care like how physiologically gifted you are. You're either going to become overtrained. You're going to burn out. You're going to get injured. Like that's, that's just the facts. Yeah. I, uh, I want to know, um, you know, I'm one of your athletes and I've followed all of your social media. We communicate via email and on Instagram once in a while. And I'm, I'm very in tune with the accounts that you guys are running. Um, not once can I think of you building your own credibility through your athletic prowess. And I'm, and I, and that just probably speaks to your humility, but I'm, I'm curious why the masses and I got to this point and didn't know that you were such a stud. Was that by design? Yeah. Like one of the best lessons my dad ever taught me, like, I think so. Well, there's a couple reasons for this. It was to always stay modest and humble. Like I don't, I never like trained or raced hard, like to get recognition for anything else. I just wanted to prove it to myself that I could do it. Like I have an inner drive that's, you know, that's like no other. Like if I want to do something, I'm probably going to do it. Otherwise die trying. So it was always about those internal goals of mine that I wanted to reach that really, you know, kept me going. I like, I never really felt the need to talk about it or be cocky about it or things like that. That's just me. And then, you know, with the, the whole social media, like I've never really put it out there because I, I really struggle with social media a lot. <laughs> Honestly, it's, it's tough. Like, I just, I, I'm a pretty private person by nature. Like you never guess that listen to 60 second brain bombs, but I'm a pretty private person. I don't want to like put all my details out there. I don't feel like the need to brag or anything like that about anything and say, you know, Hey, Hey, look at me. I just, you know, ran a 455 you know, beer mile, which I might post about that actually a 455 beer mile, but yeah. You my, did indeed do a 455 beer mile. Yeah, I did it on yeah. 4th of July. It was a 4th of July. No, uh, I've done a couple of crazy antics. In my opinion, breaking five in a beer mile is like running 4.0 in a mile. Yeah, I, I was I was a 405 miler uh, back in the day too. So, Oh, there you go. Matt, Matt, you have no idea how timely this conversation is. Uh, Bracken, why don't you tell Mr. Moseman why this conversation is so timely? Because oh this podcast is hosting its first running race, and one of the races, virtual race, is a beer mile. Oh, Over the 4th of July. No way. 4th of July virtual race weekend, the running oh public my. beer mile and burpee 10K. Oh, that's well, there's there's two things I'm good at is drinking lots of beer and running fast. And cash money up for grabs. We're making it really? real, Matt. Yes. Oh, man, that's awesome. <laughs> now, I would say if you were to sign up, you'd have a lot of people shaking in their boots. Man, I, I might be tempted. I mean, we keep getting tangential here, which is kind of like that's unintentionally becoming our calling card. <laughs> but you said you didn't run track. You didn't like that. You loved cross country. And then you just like said, oh, I, I was in 405 mile shape when I ran this. So like you, you still had some wheels and you also apparently ran a mile at some point. Yep. A road mile. So I don't know if that counts or not, but of course it does. Pancake flat. Yeah. 405. Because you'll never volunteer it. I'm going to ask, are you comfortable sharing all your PRs? Because runners live and die by numbers. <laughs> we have to judge you by your numbers. Oh, let's see. So yeah, the mile 405, two mile. What did I run for the two mile? I think like an 830 something. Wow. Um, I, 5k was low 14s, 10k high 29s. 
uh, half marathon. I was a 103 guy marathon, low 220s. Um, I did a couple ultra marathons in there, but I don't, I don't remember half those times. I mean, they, they were quick, um, but those are quick. Yeah. Your two mile time impresses me. <laughs> yeah, I always, I always liked the two mile. It was, it was fun. I think it might be the worst distance on earth. Now that's the 800 meter dash. Ah, by the time you're hurting, you're kicking in the eight. Mm. I don't get a mile. Well, like the thing is, like. I think why the two mile really worked good for me is just like based on my, my, uh, some physiological variables, like my VO two max and my lactate threshold. So like when I got tested for my VO two, it was a 92, uh, 92. And then my lactate threshold didn't usually occur until like about 90% of my VO two max. So I could, I could operate, like I could go in the pain cave and not have, you know, muscle acidosis that would slow me down. I could clear that, uh, clear that metabolic waste out quick and just keep on churning. 92. Yep. That's incredible. Yeah. You're like top 10 in the world <laughs> at VO2 max. I don't know. I don't know, but yeah, I just That's crazy. I was yeah, gifted with a gifted with an engine, I guess. How long ago was that tested? Oh god, that was that was back in my prime, probably 27 years old. Okay. How old are you now? 42. 42. Do you um I guess since you were more of an experience oriented runner, we'll call it gravitating towards like cross country and not the oval track. You ever have any, I mean, you're so heavily infused in this OCR game. Have you ever thought about jumping into anything (laughs) with your, with your, you know, I don't know, love for sport and ability. I've got that. I got asked that question a lot, a lot at first, like when we first got involved with OCR, I really thought about it hard. But then it just came down to again, uh, well, one lack of coordination, lack of strength. Well, not, not, not lack of strength. I'm a pretty strong guy, but and then just like yeah, like the time commitment. Like I literally don't have more than you know a couple hours to train now, if that nowadays with the kids and and a wife who's a doctor and then running a business and things like that. So I had good intentions of trying to do it, but then yeah, life life kind of happened, and um, yeah, I just you know if it was something I was gonna do. I would want to have the time to do it and I would want to be competitive. Like I just, I don't hardly ever do things like just to do it. And I have to have like, if I go into a competition, like I, I don't do fun runs. Like I don't do zombie runs and color runs and fun runs. Like if I'm in a race, I better be going in like top shape. Otherwise I'm not going to do it. Did you ever run any trials or anything? You must've qualified for like the Olympic trials or uh, the marathon or anything like that. Nope. Nope. I, I narrowly missed it with the marathon. I think the qualifying standard back then was like, Oh, what was the A standard? Like a two twelve, And then the B standard was like a two eighteen. Oh, so yep. Narrowly missed it. And even if I did get it, I probably, I probably wouldn't go. Cause I wouldn't have a snowball chance in hell to like <laughs> actually make the Olympics on the U S team. You mentioned you got a job with uh, the union Pacific railroad. Mm-hmm. That's not what I normally would have liked pictured when I thought human health and performance, what, what was that? In, what, what did that all entail? I it, honestly like kind of first job out of college a little bit. So it just basically, it, it uh, was working in kind of like corporate fitness with all the railroad workers who are like incredibly unhealthy and whatnot. So part of union Pacific's agenda was basically to make these workers healthy so they could get lower insurance costs and things like that. So we would, you know, take these workers in, we would do all sorts of exercise testing on them, body fat, uh, muscular endurance, strength, 
things like that. And then we would design programs for them and uh, train them uh, throughout the year to get them to, you know, you know, a healthy weight or just to make them overall healthier in general. But it was, it was a great job. Like I, I really, really liked it. Like I love working with people and that's kind of the hard part with like Endurly. You don't have that day-to-day interaction. Like if I wasn't doing Endurly, I'd probably still be a, an exercise physiologist or maybe a teacher, but, um, that was a simple side note, but yeah, the Union Pacific job was, it was, it was great. Like I, I really liked it. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. So, so that's the, is that the, one of the jobs you, you went on, I believe to leave, to go to another job. And then after that, you started your own company. Is that correct? Yeah. So after, uh, Union Pacific, I went to go work, uh, that's, that's when I went to go work for Muscle Farm. Um, they were huge. Oh mm-hmm. yeah. Muscle Farm. I mean, at one point they were a $250 million a year company, like, which is unheard of in like sports nutrition outside of like, uh, maybe one or two other companies. And I mean, they invested millions and millions of dollars in, in the research and our like research and development, like our lab that we worked out of. I mean, that was easily a $15 million lab um, with all the equipment, uh, like a DEXA, altitude chambers, um, uh, cycle ergometers, reaction tests. Um, I mean, the gym that we did the research in, I mean, it was, it was 20,000 square feet just filled with like all the best equipment. and. <clears throat> Yeah, it was it was a legit company for as much heat as they catch now. Like they were doing all the right things back then, and it it was reflected in you know how well they were doing. It makes me wonder how many stories we just don't know because I was probably in high school around that time. I think I'm nine years younger than you, maybe high school or college, and they were all over all the fitness magazines and like every shaker bottle was Muscle Farm, and it was it was geared at gym bros and meatheads. And yet you're talking about altitude chambers and like seriously, like cutting edge human performance. Oh yeah. That went towards that crowd. I wonder how many companies truly take things that seriously. None, like zero. Most companies don't want to invest the, the most supplement companies don't want to invest that type of dollars because as, as you've probably realized, like 95% of the supplement companies, probably 99% are all smoke and mirrors. They talk a good game. They talk about like the science behind their product, but they don't really know what that means. Like their science is just like having their marketing guy throw a formula together and be like, Hey, this is going to put on, you know, 10 pounds of muscle. This is going to put on or make you run a lot faster. And then you look at like this little formula they have to get like, what, what the hell is this? Like, I haven't even heard of half these ingredients. I've heard of some, but your dose is so low. It's not going to do anything. So I mean, science for most companies is just like, um, a catchphrase that sounds sexy and appealing and like legitimate when like half these guys, well, no, probably 99% of these people don't know what the hell they're doing. So, so with that job, then what was your, how did you score that job? Did you already have, did you already have experience in the nutritional and supplement supplement industry or that? Yeah, that's, that's where that clinical research came in uh, during college is when I kind of got all that experience. And then what happened is, uh, uh, another student of, uh, Dr. Jeff Stouts, he was kind of, uh, running the lab and he had asked, uh, Dr. Stout, he's like, Hey, do you know any guys that are really good at, you know, and I say this with all modesty who mm-hmm. really run really tight protocols, know how to do the data, know how to write peer reviewed papers. And he's like, I know two people. And, and then one of those happened to be me. So he reached out to me and I was like, yeah, it was, it was perfect timing. Cause I was ready to get back into that game. Okay. And then what did you do specifically? I'm just super curious about this background because I just look at you at the epitome of knowledge when it comes to all this. So 
what was your position there? What was your day to day at Muscle Farm? How did you get all that? I don't know experience. Yeah, so I was a lead research scientist. So my main job, basically two, is to design study protocols to test certain hypotheses with uh, nutrition and supplementation. And the other part was developing formulations and things like that. So first of all, would come developing the formulation. So you say, you know, the CEO would come to me and say, hey, I want to accomplish a certain goal with this supplement, you know, show me what you can do. So I would dive into the research uh, behind certain ingredients and dosages and then put together a formula that I would think would work really well based on all the research. So we would develop that out. And then that's when we would design the study protocol, like say, uh, we want to test, you know, our new amino acid supplement to see if it helps with muscle recovery after intensive exercise. So from there, I would design the study protocol. So your methods, um, what protocols you're going to use to test for muscle damage, how you're going to supplement afterwards, recruiting the subjects, getting it past an institutional review board. So you just, they just make sure you don't kill somebody with your study protocol and things like that. So get all that put together, do the studies, which I mean, studies can take anywhere from eight weeks up to two years, depending on what you want to test. Uh, test that all out, collect the data go back around, uh, analyze the data. So you want to see if there's a significant change in like pre and post variables uh, in this case, like say muscle damage, like we would test creatine kinase to see if there was muscle damage afterwards and a, a few other blood markers. And we could from there say, you know, this product actually works pretty good compared to placebo. Or if it didn't, you know, we scrap the study and go back to the drawing board and try something do, new and then um, repeat it. So once the study was done, uh, showed favorable results, we would then write a uh, peer-reviewed paper that we would submit to be published in research journals. So it's, it's, it was all very legitimate. It's not like, you know, what I call bro science, where you'll have a, a, you know, a celebrity expert, like, give their opinion on something that's just total cockamamie BS. That, that sounds like what you want to hear. Mm-hmm behind the company that you're paying money to put <laughs> substances into your body. Yep. However, we know the industry is not that way. What percent of the industry would you say are that trustworthy and have put that amount of research into what you're putting into yourself? Less than 0.01% probably. And that's crazy. It, it's, it's very crazy. But again, it, it comes down to one, not wanting to spend the money to do a study. I mean, because if you do a, a legitimate study, it's going to cost you 20 to 120 grand to conduct a study. And then two, like these companies don't have any people that know what they're doing to be able to like run a legitimate study. And you know, the few companies that have done studies, you know, way back when, or maybe currently, I mean, there's, there's still a few, some of them might, might kind of dole their research out to like a university lab and have them conduct the study for them. But then you get, you know, a huge conflict of interest um, because obviously the, the company wants the universities to produce favorable results. And there's, 10 million ways you can manipulate data to get a favorable mm -hmm. result. And then you're, you're extremely biased. And then the, the research doesn't mean jack squat. And they want your repeat business to support the university. <laughs> and... Yeah. Yeah. They want, they, they want the repeat business. And then here's the, here's the real kicker though. Like 
they would do these research studies, but they would not submit it for a peer review because they know it's BS and it would never get published. So they just have this university conduct the study and then they just put it online and like, hey, look what happened here. Like somebody took X supplement and X happened. Look at this. We're awesome. I feel like like with marketing today in this industry, you just must roll your eyes and have your blood boil just like multiple times a day when you see stuff thrown at you. Dude, I get so pissed off. Like I'm, like I'm a pretty peaceful person, but like I get really pissed off at like half this stuff I see. Like when COVID happened, I started seeing all these companies like promote, you know, oh, this supplement will prevent COVID or cure it. And I called all these people out and I probably lost like 50. I like lost close friends do this because I, I just called their complete and other bull bullshit, mm-hmm. showed them why. And it's just like, I can't stand for that stuff. I can't stand for like people promoting the product that's not going to work. And they're taking your money. And especially with something as serious as that to like give people hope that it's going to do that. I mean, that's just, it doesn't sit well with me. Mm-hmm. Going back to your job then at Muscle Muscle Farm, how long were you there for? I was there about two and a half years. Okay, and so basically, if I'm understanding, they would they would ask you to test out the effects of certain products, uh, substances, and you would roll through protocols and actually get hard data on these. So through that time, am I understanding correct that you just just soaked up like actual real hand studied knowledge of so many different aspects of supplementation. Is that where you got a lot of the real world knowledge, so to speak? Yep. Yep. That most definitely. I mean, we, we covered everything. We did supplements, we did nutrition, we did training studies. So it just wasn't necessarily just like all supplements. We, we ran the whole gamut of, of everything there. Um, so yeah, I would say that's where between, you know, my three years at Creighton, where I had the clinical research experience was awesome. It gave me the foundation to know how to do these things, but then yeah, getting in, thrown into like a company that actually does that um, really solidified like my certain skill set to be able to confidently, you know, do those types of things. Were there any like uh, tests that you ran or studies you did that we wouldn't even like think that someone like you would run or like things you would look for that maybe the common person won't even know you're doing on the back end? How, how do you mean? I don't know what I mean. I guess I'm just wondering, like, uh, is it simply just performance-based uh, testing on certain substances or supplements, or was there more to it than that? Gosh, I mean, there there was more. To, it really depends on the study. But, like, within one study, I mean, we might test, like, four different variables. <clears throat> like, say, like a caffeine study, we might test. Uh, like time to exhaustion, we might test to see if it increases resting mo- metabolic rate. We might test to see if it increases reaction time. We might test to see if it increases uh, strength. So, yeah, it's really, yes, yeah, all the studies are all very different. They can be really hyper focused, or if you're trying to, like, you can, like, make, like, say, five peer reviewed papers out of one study if you want, just if you're testing all these different uh, variables. So, um, I don't know if that, I don't know if that answers your question? Yeah, it does. Enough. I'm satisfied. Yeah. Okay, good. I want you to be satisfied. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So you got to the end of your time there and you realize you're tired of giving it away. You want to do this yourself. Was that a seamless transition or was that difficult to be able to take what you knew you wanted to do and put it out in a form that you wanted to put it out without 
compromising how you source things or how you put things together or what you're actually giving to the public. Yeah, it was it was a relatively easy transition. It, it wasn't hard at all. So I, during that time, I, I built a lot of great contacts with people in the industry. So from raw ingredient suppliers to co-manufacturers um, that make this that actually will like say blend supplements for us, uh, contacts with high level professionals and things like that. So it, it was very easy. And when I first started out, like I was still consulting a little bit just to kind of, you know, make money and support Enduralite when I was first starting out. So even from then, from there, I, I learned a ton of stuff. It gave me ideas into like market trends and what people are looking for um, and things of that nature. So yeah, super, super smooth transition. We really didn't have any, any hiccups along uh, the way, like a lot of other supplement companies do. Like there's, I mean, most people think like starting a supplement company is, is really super easy, but it is, it is incredibly hard if you don't have the experience with uh yeah, the marketing, the contacts, uh, a lot of like the FDA stuff. If you don't know that stuff, you're in for you could be in for a world of trouble later down the line. So there's a, there's a ton of things that go into to running a supplement company that make it extremely you know difficult. And that's just getting it started out. And then like once you have it started out and you have all your products to develop, then like how the heck do you get it out to the masses to like know about it? Because I mean, there's probably easily like ten to fifteen new supplement companies that start every day that are regurgitating the same old crap out to you. Uh, and then like, how do you, how do you compete with that? How do you compete with these big supplement companies that have millions of dollars to spend in marketing? Um, it's hard. So what was that time frame like right, from leaving Muscle Farm to actually having your first product on the shelf? So let's see. So I left Muscle Farm in about, when I leave, 2014. Um, that's what I did kind of start doing all the consultations and stuff like that. And then that's when I started putting all the ideas for the products for Enduralite and what the company wanted to look like, uh, coming down the line. Like, so I have like a backlog of probably like five years of stuff that I want to do with the company. So I got to the point in 2017 where I had everything kind of put together. I felt comfortable with it. And then that's when we launched our, our first product, uh, Perform Elite, which is, which is a, a pre-workout for endurance athletes. It's really never been done before. And I didn't honestly know how it was going to turn out because I was like, well, endurance athletes, you know, we're all a little bit weird. Like we're not like a gym bro or a typical gym bro. Like we're a little more natural, crunchy types and stuff like that. We kind of watch more closely what we put in the body. So this first product was just like a proof of concept. Like, hey, is Endurally viable? Is, is this pre-workout for endurance athletes something that, you know, people are going to want? And you know, thankfully it was because if it wasn't, I probably would have just shut things down. Right. Well, that's not true. I wouldn't have shut things down because we're, we're really content focused too. So we probably just would have done that instead of products, but then that just acted as a springboard and be like, Hey, there's, there's proof of concept for us here. Um, let's develop some other products. Like nobody has seen before. Cause that's, that's the thing. Like, you know, we cater towards endurance athletes, but there's other companies out there. Like all they do is really just like, you know, sports drinks or gels or waffles and things like that, which is, which is perfectly fine. There's, there's a place for that. But what I saw was like a serious lack of innovation on other products that I felt could really, you know, have a beneficial effect for endurance athletes. What date did uh, our year did Performalite first hit the shelves? It hit the shelves, I think right around October or September of 2017. Okay. Yep. So you must've dove into the OCR industry pretty quick. Yeah, gosh. Yeah. I want to say January of 2018, if not a little bit before then. 
Yeah, I think I had my first tin in my hand. In fact, I don't know. I don't know if you remember this, but I became an athlete of yours because I started taking it because I was curious. Yep. And then I reached out and was like, hey, my name's Kirk. Can I take your stuff? <laughs> and I really like it. Could I get some for free maybe and yep. partner? That's yep. how I got. But I remember that was early 20. God, that was early, early 2018. So I just and I remember seeing it before that on the, on the OCR pages I followed. So you didn't me- you didn't mess around. You went you went right for a few specific uh, sports, we'll say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we uh, like originally, like we were just going to do like cycling and running more your traditional sports. I mean, OCR was, was kind of really a surprise and um, you know, that was, you know, our involvement with OCR is, is hundred percent due to uh, a company called FitLink Media, which, you know, Steph Quinn and Michael Mark and whatnot. And they really introduced us to a lot of the athletes and, and whatnot. And then it just kind of, it kind of snowballed from there. Okay. And why was uh, Perform Elite, like you, you could have started with any product, right? You could have started with any endurance-based product and you chose yep. the endurance athletes pre-workout yep. and went all in on it. Why that one over something else? Because I knew it would be incredibly hard to launch like a sports drink or a recovery product or like a creatine when I'm stacked up against like, you know, these other thousands of companies that already have something. So I need, really needed something like unique and different and kind of like borderline crazy, <laughs> like to get people's attention. And again, just to see if it, it would work out. So I needed something way different from anything else anybody has ever done before to really um, get the attention of people, I guess. Because I didn't have like, I didn't have a huge marketing budget starting out. I didn't have any huge influencers, um, anything like that. And you know, the thing with performally, like what I hear all the time is like, once people try it, like they keep on getting it because they like it so much, which is, it's a good thing to have. Cause I still don't have a big marketing budget. And I just, I rely on, on word of mouth and, and the products to sell themselves to, to build the company. And then how long did it take after that to say, okay, I'm on to something here. Maybe <laughs> let's let's start dipping our hands in some more cookie jars. When did that right. start happening? I think that happened probably, I mean, March of 2018 um, when we released our second product, the Sustain Elite. And like, I think as soon as we launched it, I mean, we almost sold out of it in like three days. Like it was insane, like how bad people wanted it. And then we just saw like the demand for performally just increase. Like we were growing as a company, you know, anywhere from 20 to 80% month over month. And in, in the beginning, and we we're still experiencing some great growth. And so we just keep on seeing this, this curve of going up and then just, it makes us feel like we're on the right track with what we're doing and how we've, you know, how we built the company, how we present the company, um, the products we're making and things like that. Cool. Yeah. I'm curious to know because people, people always ask kind of the same questions. Like what should I be taking? How much should I take? What actually does work for me? Mm-hmm. So I, I was also um, an Endure Elite athlete for a while yep. and loved the product to the point where when we parted ways, I kept promoting the product because it was something I kept believing in. Yep. And like I went and did a, a hundred mile ride two days ago and I used exclusively sustainably during it. Like it's still my go-to because it's just the best that I found. And your site tells why it's the best and gives resources. <laughs> like it, 
we like that there's not a secret about it, but people yep. still do ask all these questions. And out of curiosity, I went and I, I went through all your ingredients, everything I could decipher. And I thought like, okay, let's say I didn't want to keep paying for this. Yep. Could I make this myself? Could I source this from Amazon and do it? And I came up with what I thought was the best me, a layman could come up with and how much it would cost per month and source it the way I would and put it together the way I would based on mine. When people start talking about that, like bang for your buck and what I could do on my own versus other companies who put out probably a substandard product, what is the big difference that we're missing from what I would make myself or I would make or I would find from somebody else to what you would consider the ultimate level? Like we're talking bang for your buck. What is the difference in performance for a pre-workout and a mid-workout, um, something that I would take between what I could do and what you guys do? So you're talking about just like building a product by yourself and stuff like yeah. that. So like, say if you took the performance label and you sourced all those raw ingredients by yourself and mm -hmm. whatnot, um, I mean, one, I mean, the difficulties in that, like, because for the record, I didn't do it because I felt like, yeah, yeah. totally missing the mark, but why, what would I be missing myself? Well, there's a, there's a few things you like, honestly, like you could absolutely do it. Like it, it might, the, well, let's just go over this. Like, what, what are you missing? One, the raw ingredients you get, I mean, you may be getting like, say, if you go for creatine, you may be getting 10 grams of sawdust as opposed to creatine. So like for me, when I bring all my raw ingredients in house, I have them tested to make sure that what's on that barrel of raw ingredient is actually in there because it's a common practice in the supplement industry. Like say, if you order a creatine, it won't actually be creatine or it'll be a lower purity creatine from what you're getting. So when it comes down to raw ingredient testing, if you're getting these products on Amazon, you don't know you, unless they have like a certificate of authenticity. You don't know mm -hmm. if that's what it is, says it is. Two, you know, I test for banned substances on all my raw ingredients. So, I mean, another another common practice in the supplement industry is to spike your stuff with illegal ingredients. So, like, you you know, you might get a pre workout, and you realize you put on ten pounds of muscle in like two weeks, and then you know later down the line you figure it's it's, it's uh, spiked with you know whatever a steroid or stuff like that, and that that's actually happened. And why, and I see that a lot. Why does that happen? Is it simply to get people on a product that actually works or is it like, it can't be cost effective. So why does it happen? It, it depends. Like it, it can be cost effective. Like some of these companies can make stuff really, really cheap. So they may like on the surface, they may put like <clears throat> all these raw ingredients in there that look really good and do it for cheap. And then they'll, they'll get something more expensive, like a steroid and, and just slap it in there without putting it on the label. So they can kind of justify the offset and cost by using these cheaper ingredients and then using them more expensive. Because I mean, yeah, if you put a steroid in there, you're going to grow regardless of what else is in there. So mm -hmm. they do it. So they get you hooked on the product. I mean, which is, which is total gotcha. crap. So yeah, you have, you know, raw ingredient testing, you have testing for banned substances. Um, and then you go to like blending techniques. So there's certain blending techniques that you use that you want to get a homogenous blend. Like if you blend the wrong way, you might get a, a ton of clumping, um, and things like that. That's where I got hung up was on your dicaffeine blend. The dicaffeine malate. Yeah. I can't just combine, you know, malic acid and caffeine and like in the proper doses. It didn't no. seem like I would be able to do that. No, because it's, it's ionically bonded together. Like they ionically bond the thing together unless you have like a $20,000 machine to do that. You, you can't do it. Um, which, but you can still like, you could still buy dicaffeine malate on Amazon uh, possibly and blend it. So you have that. Um, and then from there, I mean, taste like 
that's the hardest part of a formulation is getting something to taste good because a lot of these ingredients that you know you might see in a supplement are extremely raw or bitter and just just gross and like the science of flavoring is is very involved like you have to you know use things like citric acid and malic acid and certain natural flavors and all this other stuff so you have that and then you also have like like say if you were to source all the ingredients for uh performally i mean that would cost you a lot of money like to buy a bag of each individual ingredient and then you consider all those other factors and it would just make it difficult uh, to do. And again, not saying you couldn't do it. I mean, you absolutely could. You could take the formula I have. You could, you know, make make all the raw ingredients and mix them up without anything to do. But just the, kind of those things I discussed, it would just, it would taste like crap probably. And it probably wouldn't be quite as effective based on some of the bonding that goes on with some of the ingredients. Gotcha. Yeah. Something I'm actually curious about, and I think a lot of people are too, because you have your two lines. You have like your Perform Elite and your Perform Elite X and your Sustain Elite and X. Um, something that I'm just, I want to know is what what's really the difference between the two and like how might that feel in an intense exercise bout? Yeah. So like the, the whole X version of my product line is like, if cost was not a consideration, this is what I would be making for myself. Because like with the oh. self-ministry, like, yeah, I, I make, I, I, I want to say I make great formulas and like my formulas probably cost three to four times more to make than like what a typical pre-workout would be like, say when you're talking about Performly, but on the same token too, I got to remain competitive with price. So that's why you have like the regular Performly. And then the X is again, like if I just want to do things my way and everything I want in there, this is, this is what I would take. So with the, the regular Performly, say compared to the Performly X, You'll notice the inclusion of things like highly branched cyclic destrin, which is a very expensive carbohydrate. You'll notice the inclusion of something called theobromine, which is a flavonoid from dark chocolate that has uh, demonstrated research as far as uh, incremental increases in VO2 max. And just other certain ingredients in there uh, that just give it, uh, what's the right word? Just things that I would want in my pre-workout you know, if, if I had my druthers and price wasn't a consideration, like performally by itself, it's absolutely awesome. The, the perform lead X is just another level, I would say. So what you might notice with like the perform lead X compared to the regular perform lead is say something is like, uh, the choline and alpha GPC and perform lead X. You may, you're probably going to find a, a huge, or uh, a huge focus factor increase compared to the regular perform lead. Cause I mean, that's, that's part of like hard endurance exercise, right? If, if you're not focusing in the game, like things can go downhill pretty quick when things get hard is, is a, and when people become unfocused is when you kind of go off the rails. So that's my, that's uh, something you might notice. You might notice too, with the higher amounts of caffeine in perform lead X, that exercise may feel easier. You may, uh, you know, blunt some of that pain. Um, just cause with caffeine, <clears throat> say for example, three to six milligrams uh, per kilogram body weight is kind of like the the standard dose. We just put a higher amount in there um, as demonstrated by the research to have a little more beneficial effect compared to the amounts of like say caffeine found in the regular performally. Oh, that answer was actually more thorough than I was expecting. <laughs> you, you, I you, answered you, that question like 10 times or no, probably hundreds of times. So well, I know, but that's real. That's a really real answers. Like the, oh. that was not fluff. That was like, I'm not holding back. I'm giving you every possible thing I can think of to help you perform. And it comes with a cost, but that you have to decide. Yeah. What's more important. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And like, I think it's like price, I think it's $20 more expensive than our regular performance, which is like, we sell it for 69. And I mean, that's a chunk of change for a pre-workout when you're competing against like, you know, well, not really competing, but like in a similar category of a pre-workout that sells for, you know, 29, you know, $30. I mean, people see a $70 price tag and like, oh my God, why should I pay this much? And, you know, just explain it to them. And from there they make their choice. But I mean, like with Performally Dex, it's probably our second best selling product just behind Performally. Oh, hmm. So this this feels to me like the natural segue to to what we talked about in the beginning of what is nonsense and what is real return on your investment. So you can speak to it from a diet standpoint if you'd like, okay. or you can stick to just being the supplement nutrition standpoint. But people truly do want to know what is tricking me and what is real. Like what can I turn to and expect to become better in some measurable way? And what is really like placebo, peace of mind or fluff? Oh man. So we, I mean, we can talk about, we can do this in a couple different ways. We can talk about like strict nutrition first, and then we can talk about like supplements, like kind of what's BS and what's might truly be effective and, and some differences. Yeah. There. Let's start a broad picture of nutrition and then we'll spearhead, uh, spearfish towards supplements. <laughs> Clever. So let's talk let's talk like specifically revolving around like endurance athletes because i think I, i'm imagining right. that your listeners are endurance athletes so let's talk about all the different diets and like what uh, you know changes you can expect to see so as you guys were talking about i mean there's there's all these diets out here there's paleo there's there's keto there's there's high carb there's low carb there's high protein and there's this, there's all this stuff, but what I'm going to say with this diet is like diet is heavily, heavily activity dependent as far as, you know, which way you want to lead, lean towards, towards like if we're talking pure performance benefits. So let's just compare, you know, high carb compared to keto for endurance athlete with, for endurance athlete, like without a doubt, the majority of the research supports a high carb diet for endurance athletes. And I'll, I'll get to this in, in a little bit. So like on a day-to-day -day basis, <clears throat> according to the research, in order to like keep muscle glycogen stores saturated, which glycogen is basically energy that you're burning during exercise. As an endurance athlete, you want to be consuming about six to 10 grams of carbohydrates per pound body weight, um, or excuse me, per, per kilogram body weight daily to accomplish this mission. Now this, this amount will vary depending on like where you're at in the training cycle. So if you're like an off season, you're not training that hard, you might be more towards that, that six grams. Whereas if you're getting ready for a, to peak for an event, you may go up to like 10 grams a day per kilogram body weight to help basically carb load and saturate muscle glycogen stores. So that's what I'd be looking at like on a day-to-day -day basis for carbohydrate consumption. You can kind of think of this, like if you want to like do it loosely, like a macronutrient breakdown might be like 50% uh, calories from carbs, 30 from fat, 20 from protein. And those may just vary depending on, you know, again, your training cycle. So that's kind of like on a day-to-day -day basis um, with carbohydrate consumption. Now, if you're talking like uh, pre-race performance and stuff like that, there's certain there's certain strategies you can use 
for optimal performance. So like, say if you're getting ready for a race, uh, race day is, or race time is, is 9am. There's a few things you want to do. So first thing, uh, about three to four hours before you race, you're gonna have your pre-race meal. This again, you want to be high carbohydrate, about 200 to 300 grams of carbs, quick digesting carbs, uh, low protein, low fat, because, uh, protein and fat, they take more work to digest, which can cause possibly GI distress in your race. So that's three to four hours beforehand. Another two hours before you want to consume another about 50 grams of carbohydrates time to top off glycogen stores. And then about 30 minutes before the race, you can do a small carbohydrate if you want, like a gel, like 20 to 30 grams of carbohydrates. And then you're ready to rock and roll. Like blood or glycogen is saturated, blood glucose is elevated, and you're ready to go. So that's kind of like a pre-race meal. And that can, that can have a significant effect on your performance. Um, I do feel like, not to interrupt, but I do feel like a lot of people undereat the morning of a race. I'm a two giant bowls of cereal with almond milk and maybe top it off with a banana in the car before I get out to go to the venue. I see a lot of people eat a lot lighter than that on race morning. You know, 800, 800, roughly 800 calories of carbs is what you're outlining almost in a sense. That is two heaping bowls of like cereal or like a good large bowl of an oat, like an oatmeal. Like it's more than people think, I believe. So you, oh, you, yeah. you think people should really feel the morning of a race. Cause I see, I'll have a cliff bar and I'll call it good. Cause I, you know, I'm, I'm nervous and I don't have an appetite <laughs> and all those things. Yep. I just want to, I want to make sure that people understand like you're outlining, like eating like a, a decent amount of food. Oh yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I know, I, I understand about like pre-race jitters and like, you know, your gut is all out of sorts, like before a race and things like that. But from my experience, a lot of people that have that, are people that are eating like eggs and bacon and like these slower digesting macronutrients before a race. And, you know, even if they are eating higher carbohydrates, you know, there's, there's training for like your body for running, but there's also a, a huge body of research, like training the gut. So it's something you may need to test out like before, like a training session to get used to it too, to get your body used to it. Um, but I think like, you know, the people that I've talked to that have implemented this strategy, I mean, they've seen significant improvements in, and endurance performance, especially like during like a, you know, two hour plus race, because it, it does make a huge difference. Before you get back to what the question I asked you, um, I'm going to d- distract you for a second. Yeah. What is your answer then to people who have a 6 or 7 a.m. start time and are like, I'm just not going to get up at 4 a.m. or 3 a.m. because <laughs> that's craziness. My flight didn't get in until 10. What, what, what is that action? Uh, I, basically if you're going to do that carb load three days before the race, and then, um, the night before you want to eat a, eat a pretty heavy carbohydrate meal. If you can have a late night carbohydrate snack. And then, you know, when you wake up, I mean, it, stomach what you can, but it, it should be a quick digestion carb. Like don't do a cliff bar. Like I like cliff bars as much as the next person, but like the fiber content and the minuscule amount of fat and protein in there can really throw you off. So I mean, think like maybe like a banana and a cup of orange juice, but just those quick digesting carbs that'll have a, that'll spike blood glucose um, before you start the race. Would you say there's a noticeable difference in performance between option A and option B? I think there is for the longer races. Absolutely. Like you may be able to slide by on like a 30 to 45 minute race with not doing it. And you know, there's, there's outliers on that too. Like people might dominate a two hour race by doing that, but for the majority of the people, for those longer races, you're going to be better off eating a significant pre-race meal. Okay. What do you think about Bracken showing up to a race or two in his day completely fasted that morning? Terrible idea. 
<laughs> Terrible idea. Well, haven't you done that a couple of times, Bracken? Uh, for 30 minute or less races where I ate my last meal at nine or 10 PM the night before I've shown up like 5k distance or under and raced with nothing in my gut. Yes, I have. I, I don't anymore, but I've done it. I've tested a lot of things. Yeah. And that's, I like, I think that's fine. Like if your glycogen stores are topped off for a 30 minute race, like you can, you can survive off glycogen for that. But I see these people coming into like races, longer races, fasted. And the problem with that is like, once the intensity goes up, like, so you go into like something called anaerobic glycolysis. The only thing you can burn during anaerobic glycolysis is carbs, AKA glycogen and glucose. So, you know, you come in in a fasted state, there's probably a higher concentration of uh, free fatty acids in your blood. In the newsflash, anaerobic glycolysis can't use free fatty acids. So, uh, you know, you might see somebody just like fall flat on their face if they come in fasted for like an hour or more race. Hmm. So no, that, that was great. Those are good answers. <laughs> and I did derail you. So back to the, you were talking about um, high carb diet versus something else for an endurance athlete. Yeah. So as a kind of like segue, like when I talked about like free fatty acids, you see all these endurance athletes like proclaiming keto is, is, is awesome and stuff like that. So keto obviously is really high fat, moderate amounts of protein and, and really low carb. Like, I'm, I'm going to say this, like, just so I don't get, I don't get crushed too bad by your listeners. Like if you find a diet that works really good for you, I mean, great. I'm not going to criticize it, but again, you can't ignore like certain laws of physiology. Like, so for keto, I mean, the whole theory is, is you want your body to use uh, free fatty acids as your fuel source during exercise, which really it, it represents an unlimited store of energy compared to like, you know, high carbohydrate diets. Like you can store you know, a high amount of, of glycogen in your muscles, but like free fatty acids, I mean, 20, 30 times that amount that could be burned to energy. And I'll, I'll say this, like keto is good for like ultra endurance events where it's a low intensity, where your body can use uh, something called the Krebs cycle to basically metabolize these free fatty acids into something called acetyl-CoA that can go in the Krebs cycle and make energies. Like it can do that all day long. But again, once you get into like a high intensity situation, you're going to fall flat on your ass unless you're supplementing carbs uh, the day of or during like a race while you're on keto. So where would you put that floor at of race duration for where keto is no longer, or is it just anything where you have to spike into anaerobic ever? Yeah. It's, it's more like intensity dependent, like, mm -hmm. like 5k race. I've never seen anybody race a good 5k off of keto. Like never. <laughs> you know, I'm going to add anecdotal evidence to that. And I mentioned this in our nutrition episode on Tuesday, but I did uh, keto for a month straight. I tested my blood ketones, pricked my finger, ate exactly zero to five grams of carbs a day. And the only carbs I was getting maybe would be like what my sausage was seasoned with and they add up slowly, right? And I was in ketosis. And if I were to describe how I felt, let's say I had five gears. We'll go to a car analogy, Bracken. I know you love these. I couldn't get past my third gear. Yep. I was just duck. And I went to do some hard workouts and I was like, I don't even have that gear. It is just gone. Yep. And so to your testament, I could run all day pace at these low heart rate zones. But as soon as I had to go work, it was like, where did it go? I just lost it. Yep. Yeah. Keto, keto's like, there's, there's great things for like keto, like for like, you know, outside of ultra endurance, it's great for uh, body composition. Maybe people with like metabolic diseases, 
uh, keto is really good, but like, I, I don't think anybody can argue with me based on the, uh, the available research that keto is better than a high carb diet, especially for endurance athletes. Like you can think of like high carbs as like, you know, high octane fuel. And you can think of keto as like a, like a sludge, like maybe mm -hmm. that's a bad correlation, but you kind of get my points. Carbohydrates just burn a lot more efficiently and fuel your muscles a lot better than, than free fatty acids can. And then not to mention like keto diet is it's, it's hard to adhere to. Like, I mean, most people think you know, like they're keto after a week on the keto diet. Uh, uh, no keto takes like the adaptations take anywhere for about 30 days. And like, it's, it's hard to like, not want to eat like cake and ice cream and cookies and bread mm -hmm. and all delicious things. It took me almost two weeks to get into true ketosis. Yeah. It, 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 it takes a while. So yeah, ketosis, I mean, are the keto diet limited applications, probably not the best for endurance athletes. So you have that. And then you have, you know, let's just go on another tangent here because people will probably be interested to hear about this is like a vegan diet. Um, you know, everybody's seen this movie, the game changers, and, you know, I watched it. I mean, there's some good information in there, but some of it's just like, it's flat out wrong with, with, with some of the stuff. So let's look at the benefits of a vegan diet for an endurance athlete. Obviously, really high carbohydrates because you're eating a lot of plant sources, um, things like that. High in vitamins, minerals, nutrient density, you know, really, really good. Um, the true, like if I can say like, not necessarily the downfall, but the kind of the, the crutch of, of a vegan diet is that a vegan diet, like, you know, in the Game Changers, I think they're like, oh, a vegan diet as far as like protein is, is just as good as like, you know, a meat diet or meat-based diet or dairy. And that's, that's, that's not true at all. <clears throat> and especially for like recovery, can you do it on a vegan diet? Yeah. But you're going to have to eat a ton more like a protein sources to get the amount that you want to promote optimal recovery. So when we talk about recovery and protein, I mean, the three constitutes of protein that you're really looking at for muscle protein is the branch chain amino acids, leucine, isoleucine, and valine, and you know, a meat diet compared to a vegan diet. Plant proteins are a lot poorer source of these BCAs compared uh, to meat sources and things like that. So again, it, it just depends. As a, you know, as a vegan, you just have to eat a lot more of these protein sources and then, you know, you're getting a lot more calories, which you may not need. I mean, you see the, the movie, the game changers. I mean, that, that power lifting guy, I mean, he was, he was huge and he's all vegan. Like you wouldn't think a big vegan is this big old tubby guy, but that's just because he's consuming a large amount of calories in order to get his protein for, for muscle repair and, um, recovery. Do you think the one big flaw with being vegan would be just like, you would have to be a student of moving the puzzle pieces to get everything in properly. And even at that, some of the quality of those puzzle pieces wouldn't be the same as a balanced diet in your opinion. Correct. Like everybody thinks like a diet is like magic. Like there's a magic diet that's going to work for everybody. It, it's not, that's not the case at all. Like the, my best advice for anybody that wants to go on the optimal diet, everything in moderation for the most part, like that's, that's really key. Like a vegan, being a vegan, isn't going to make you a superstar athlete just like overnight. And maybe it won't like what a lot of people don't know about game changers is like those athletes that they interviewed, they were a lot better when they were on a meat diet. Look it up. I, I swear to God to you, like, like I think uh, dot the cycling, she was a lot faster when she was on a meat, uh, meat based diet. Um, but again, like with the vegan thing, I know it's kind of hot topic. Like if it works for you, if you do it for an ethical reason, you know, fine, but just, just don't go telling me like it's superior to every other diet because the best diet 
is the one that works best for you. And like what I tell people, the best diet is the one you're probably not on because there is no best diet. Mm, Beck, and aren't you? Uh, so I was personally sweating just a hair before this. We got into this and maybe Brack and you were too, because I am so happy that you echoed basically our same sentiment in our Tuesday episode. And I can just, I just breathe deep for the first time, knowing <laughs> that you didn't just like throw what we were saying under the bus. Brack and I, you can wipe the sweat off your brow now, Brack. I don't mind being wrong. It would just be embarrassing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, here's my theory too. Like these these fad diets that come and go, the people that really promote them and just look this up, like the people that really try to promote them are the people that are usually trying to sell you something. Like that's that's usually what it comes down to. Oh, you want to go keto? Well, hey, I got these keto meals. I got these keto proteins. Keto is awesome. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, whatever. It's just, it's, it's frustrating. Like people make diet a lot, lot more complicated than it needs to be as far as like, oh, I'm going to measure all my food. I'm going to use my fitness pal to track all this stuff. But like, if you've been doing this for a while, you know what you should be eating and, and drinking on a day-to-day -day basis to perform your best. You don't need to get like crazy about it. Like it's just, it's insanity sometimes. If if you don't have more, I mean, maybe you do. Do you have more from a nutritional standpoint that you want to get into, or or is it time to transition to supplemental talk? Um, it, it depends what you guys want to do. We can talk about like nutrition, like during racing, if you want, or we can hop right into supplements. Actually, let's touch on that really quick. We get plenty of questions on that. Yeah, the during race uh, nutrition. Let's go for it. Okay. Yeah. So during race nutrition, again, you want to go with carb sources, quick digesting carb sources. You want to avoid like fat and protein. Like don't ever drink like something or eat something with, you know, protein in it during a race. Uh, opt for more like branch chain amino acids because like branch chain amino acids have a, a, a variety of effects, like with reducing muscle protein breakdown, blunting fatigue, and they can be used as a fuel source. But that's, that's kind of a side note. So for generally, depending on the duration and the intensity of a race to keep blood glucose levels elevated and to spare glycogen for like more intense efforts, the general recommendations are 30 to 60 or 30 to 90 grams of carbs per hour. Now for the 30 grams of carbs per hour, you can probably get by with that up to like a two hour race that will keep glucose elevated. And then you can rely on some of your glycogen stores. Now, as you get above to like two hours to five hours, um, you could go up to that 60 grams of carbs an hour. And this is if you can stomach that too. Again, you should train the gut and training to be able to tolerate that amount of carbs. Now here's, here's where it gets really interesting. It's like, say if you're doing like, for example, like a, a Spartan 24 hour race, or something like that, where you're just grinding, uh, you know, all day long, you go up to 90 grams of carbohydrates, but there's a caveat here. Once you get above 60 grams of carbohydrates, there's different uh, transporters in the gut that, you know, will shuttle carbohydrates in the muscle. So like, so say if you have fructose and you try to do 90 grams of fructose per hour, you are going to end up with a major gut bomb because your body can't process that amount of fructose. So as you go above, you know, 60 grams of carbohydrates for these really long durations, you want to include multiple carbohydrate sources like fructose, sucrose, uh, glucose, highly branched cyclic dextrin, just a variety of different carb sources. So you don't end up with like a huge gut bomb. So those are kind of like your, your general recommendations during exercise. And this can, this can be in the form, like if you do gels, if you could do it like a sports drinks by itself, 
I mean, you could do real food in there too, because, you know, let's be honest, after, you know, 24 hours, you can only, only eat so many gels or, or things like that. Um, so those are, yeah, those are kind of some of the key numbers that you're looking at for like intra-race nutrition. What do you think about people sipping on their pickle juice or taking mustard packets? Or I know guys that'll take a stick of beef jerky because of the sodium content, yeah. so to speak. What do you think of that? Yeah, pickle juice, yeah, works really good. Mustard works really good. It's not like it's anything magic. It's just like it's a it's a pungent taste. So the, the so we're, they're probably taking it for cramping, right? That are to prevent cramps. Yep. So yeah, when you cramp, there's like uh, spasmatic nerve transmission that cause the cramps and. For some reason, like the pickle juice, the mustard, things like the hot shot, that kind of like pungent taste overrides these erratic nerve impulses and stops the cramps. So I'm I'm actually all all for it. Um, there's there's actually some pretty solid research um, behind it where like the scientists would induce a cramp through um, electrostimulation, which is absolutely terrible. And then people would uh, consume the pickle juice, and then like about 15 to 20 seconds, uh, the cramp would go away. Oh, so for the ultra crowd, since those are the, you know, generally longer than two hours, cramp city begins for a lot of people, yep. for the people that are getting to the point where they just have to eat. Yep. Uh, like some of us can drink sustainably or tailwind or whatever it's going to be all day long. Yep. Others have to start eating earlier. But if you do have to start eating, are you of the, the mind that whatever you can stomach is good, or would you have a hierarchy of foods you would steer people towards in that situation? I, I think it, it, it changes as you go further in the race. Like, um, yeah, at first it's just, yeah, what you can stomach, what sounds good, but ideally those should be, like I said, higher carbo, higher, higher carbohydrate, quick digesting carbs, um, to basically keep that blood glucose elevated without much, uh, having the body to kind of break down a lot of things like the fats and proteins. So you could think like, maybe like, I don't know, peanut butter and jelly sandwich, a banana, things like that. But then as you get further in the race, I think it does like, it comes down to a personal preference as far as what you can stomach. Because I mean, with those ultra endurance races too, a huge part of that is mental and morale and eating a Snickers and Coke may feel like really, really good and give you that boost yeah. to keep on going. And I, and I'm all for that. Like there's no like, Oh, like, hundred percent. I strict like things you absolutely should be doing this because so many things can change throughout the race and not only the physical, but the mental. And like I said, that Snickers may give you a mental yeah. boost to keep on going. That's interesting. So you start with the best version of what you can stomach and yep. eventually it's whatever gets in, gets in. Exactly. Because at that point, like you need the calories and calories are calories. And I would be more off to tell you to eat that Snickers if that's the only thing that sounds good at that point. Okay. So I, I didn't bring you on here to pimp your company, but I support your company and I'm going to pimp it now. I, I, Kirk and I both believe that Sustain Elite is the best product we've found for inter-competition fueling, intra-competition yeah. fueling, not, not fueling between, fueling during competition. And why, I guess, explain to me why my body does so much better with that, why I can drink the same thing longer and without issues than I have on, because I've tried everything. Why, why is it my go-to? Well, the first thing you got to realize before we talk about sustainability is most sports drink, their main carbohydrate is something called maltodextrin. Now they'll, they'll pimp this as like a great carbohydrate source. It, maybe it's fine, but the, the reason they use it is because it's, it's dirt cheap, like it's pennies on the dollar. 
uh, what maltodextrin is for people that don't know is they take corn, they press it, they squeeze all the juice out of it and it dries. It's like, it's a shitty process. Excuse my language. And then with the maltodextrin, maltodextrin is a major gut irritant by itself. Um, you know, even at like 30 grams of carbs per hour straight from maltodextrin, but even more so as you go higher and higher up, you just have all this gross maltodextrin sitting in your stomach. Um, that's not getting shuttled, uh, to the intestines and then to the muscle as far as like, um, the glucose. So that's the first thing you got to realize with most typical sports strength. The second thing is most typical sports drinks don't include like the amount of carbohydrates you need. You may see like anywhere from like 10 to 20 grams of carbs in a serving size for sports drinks. And, th and that's not enough uh, for endurance athletes on uh, that all the fuel your needs, especially if you're exercising at a high intensity, but the real game changer, like with, with sustainable and why you can tolerate it so well and why you feel so good is it has a variety of of basically slow, medium, and fast digesting carbohydrates in them that basically just, it keeps your blood glucose stable. It doesn't cause huge spikes and huge downs. Like say, if you were just, you know, supplementing with the maltodextrin or a glucose where you get a huge blood sugar spike and then you just crater and then you'd almost feel like hypoglycemic, right? And then, then it's all over. So that's one thing is, is the variety of different carbohydrates that have different digestion speeds to keep blood glucose stable. The second thing, which we already talked about, it, 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 it basically contains a variety of these carbohydrate sources. So in there, we have the highly branched cyclic dextrin, which is an awesome super carb. It's, it's a fast gastric emptying carb. So it doesn't stay gut long in your gut very long. It gets in there, it gets in the intestines, and it gets to the muscles, and then basically zero GI distress. So you have that, you have the fructose, you have the glucose, um, which are really quick digesting carbs. And then you have, uh, I think we have the uh, rice powder and potato powder in there, which are the more complex carbohydrates. So it all balances out really, really nicely as far as getting the fuel to your muscle needs without having those huge blood glucose spikes or, you know, without causing that uh, gut distress you may get from like just a single source of maltodextrin carbohydrate sport strength. So you have that. <clears throat> and then you also have um, branch chain amino acids in there, which you'll never see anything like I, I can't think of another sports drink that has branch chain amino acids. And if they do, they're not in the right amount. You know, most people think branch chain amino acids, you know, recovery. Yeah, absolutely. They work for recovery. But they're also, they're really good at a few things with endurance exercise. One, they can reduce muscle protein breakdown during endurance exercise. So the integrity of the muscle fibers stay intact longer when, especially like when you're grinding really like, um, you know, hammering something out over longer duration, uh, they can really help with that. <clears throat> they can also uh, blunt fatigue because they compete with tryptophan which, you know, with tryptophan, you know, most people think it makes you sleepy, makes you fatigued. So they can compete with tryptophan. So it can blunt fatigue. <clears throat> and then they can also be used as a fuel source um, through gluconeogenesis, it's called. This is the process where amino acids can be turned into glucose and be used for fuel. So in the event you're, you're running low on carbohydrates, these BCAs can be used uh, to be converted to uh, glucose. <clears throat> and then you have um, and a good electrolyte blend that's just not sodium. You have sodium, potassium, and calcium in there. And like most people think like electrolytes are for cramping. They're really not like maybe a little bit, but no, no, I'll just go ahead and say electrolytes really don't prevent camp, uh, cramping. Uh, Preach for a second. What causes cramping? Cramping is, it's, 
I would say this cramping is, is caused by, again, uh, neuromuscular uh, things. And again, those sporadic firing of the, of uh, these certain nerves. And more often than not, cramping happens in races because people have not trained for the demands of the race, either the intensity Thank or you. the duration. So Thank you. yes, yes. They haven't exposed their body to those stressors before or enough before that it just freaks out when they are under that stress. Absolutely. So yeah, that's, that's probably like the research supports that that's more than likely what uh, causes cramping. It's not, it's not electrolytes. Uh, it just, uh, you, that's like urban, urban legend myth stuff. Um, so electrolytes just help maintain blood volume and they can kind of act as an intercellular hydrator um, for these cells. So like people, most people think they should take electrolytes during which is fine. Like if you want to drink that, that's fine. Um, but you should honestly be taking electrolytes like the day before the race to basically encourage intracellular hydration. So you come in in a fully hydrated state and then you can take them during to maintain that blood volume too. Awesome. How long does it take for, let's say you're sipping on your sustain elite or whatever, a goo, whatever, a high quality product. Mm -hmm. How long does it take from the time you ingest that to the time it is creating actionable difference in your muscles, performance, energy systems. So if you're talking about like carbohydrates, like with sustainably, we tested this, like you'll see, yeah. you'll see an elevation in blood glucose after about 10 minutes. So that quick 10 minutes and you could stave off a bonk or feel maybe, Oh, I feel a little better now at 10 minutes. Yep. Yep. And that's just because like the quicker digesting carbohydrates. So like the fructose and glucose in there. And then that's kind of when the other carbohydrates take over. So you don't have that huge, like the spike and decline. Um, if you were just to stick with those simple sugars. So yeah, that's with like strictly carbohydrates, other like supplements, ingredients, like say like uh, a very popular one, caffeine, you'll see caffeine in the bloodstream after about 20 minutes, but you'll see ca caffeine concentrations in the blood uh, peak at 60 minutes. Oh, 60 minutes after initial consumption. Hence why we should take our perform elite 30 minutes before. So that hits us right in the middle of that race. And we're feeling jacked and ready. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yep. Um, okay, cool. And let's move on to the supplement side of things. Now, I, I said something in our last episode, and it was, I would rather you... Now, I take supplements, and I think there's some that are important, so I'll, I'll give you that preface. But um, I would rather you get a half an hour plus more sleep a night than spend $200 a month on supplements. I think you'd see a, as big of a return on investment or more and your pocketbook would still have the money left in it. Yep. Well, the floor is yours. Awesome. So I'm going to tell you something some other, like probably no other supplement guy will ever tell you. Like the way you train, the way you eat, the way you sleep, the way you recover is vastly, 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 vastly more important and key to performance than supplements. Hands down. Like if you don't have that part dialed in or at least pretty good, you know, supplements, they're not going to be a magic bullet that are going to like, you know, turn you into a faster runner just because you start taking a supplement. All those things you do like and you should be doing are the things that are going to really be the key indicators to how well you perform in training and on um, race day and that's that's why they're called supplements you don't need them like you'll never hear that so you hear, hear a supplement guy like 
tell you that. Like, you don't need supplements. That's why they're called supplements. Like, if you're missing, <laughs> like, yeah, if you have like micronutrient deficiencies, yeah, maybe a multivitamin will, will work really good for you. If you want a slight ergogenic or performance enhancing benefit, yeah, absolutely. Caffeine works, like creatine works. Like you can absolutely, you know, take them. It may things may make things, you know, feel a little bit easier. But if you're looking for a magic bullet as far as supplements, it doesn't exist. Like it just it just doesn't. Or if you like, you know, you take supplements out of convenience, like say like a protein powder, like you may not be able to eat enough protein in a day or don't care to. Or, you know, maybe eating a bunch of chicken after your workout doesn't sound good. So you slam away protein shake. Yeah, that absolutely, you know, that, that fits, that makes sense. I just don't want people to get the impression that supplements are needed because they're not, they're just there to provide like a slight edge in your performance or recovery or, you know, fill in like micronutrient de deficiencies and, and things like that. And, you know, that's, okay. yeah. and then outside of that, like, I'll be honest, like most supplements don't work. Like they don't work either because, you know, the raw ingredients, there's no research on them or, you know, something really popular is most supplement companies don't put the right amounts in them for it to work. I mean, that's, that's where you get into all these proprietary blends and like lack of transparency in what you're taking. So I like hearing that, but I'm going to play devil's advocate now. Like that being said, what do you have a blanket recommendation for the average athlete? Like this is something that if you do want to take stuff, this is what you should be looking at because this fills the most common gaps. Yeah. So your most important supplement as an endurance athlete that you should be taking, and this is, this you never hear this answer is carbohydrates. Like carbohydrates are the, the most important supplement for endurance athlete. And you're like, well, carbohydrates aren't a supplement. Well, yeah, they are the sports drink you're drinking. The chew, the chew, you know, or the gel you're eating, that's a, that's a supplement, that's a carbohydrate. So, I mean, that's the one thing I would go to first. Outside of that, like the things you could take where you could see a pretty immediate and positive benefit is, is one, caffeine. You know, tons of research on caffeine behind creatine. It's probably the most studied um, ergogenic aid in the history of sports supplementation. Um, then things like uh creatine for example most people think creatine is for bodybuilders uh endurance athletes can vastly or benefit vastly from that um uh, as far as just increased muscular power strength endurance interhydration um things like that so with creatine like with endurance athletes you know one of the side effects of creatine if you can consider a side effect is weight gain with endurance athletes about 2.5 grams daily is going to be your, your key spot. But the thing is you want to take it every day because creatine requires loading. You just can't take it once and expect it to work. So you have the carbs, the creatine, caffeine, <clears throat> the beta alanine, which can help uh, stave off something called muscle acidosis. Um, usually like when you exercise intensely, hydrogen ions start to accumulate the muscle and that's where you feel like that burn or fatigue. So beta alanine can and stave that off. Um, and again, that requires a loading period. Uh, let's see, what else? Beetroot powder is a, a great one, but most products won't have the right amount that will yield the amount of nitrates to have a positive benefit. Um, and then I would look at key micronutrients deficiencies. I would look at your magnesium, your vitamin D, and then I would look at your, uh, look at choline also as a supplement. Um, okay. those, are, those are some pretty solid recommendations 
that if you're taking those, you know, with some of those dailies or daily, and then some of you're taking them before a hard workout or a race, you could see a significant improvement. Like say with the caffeine, lots of studies have demonstrated a three to 15% improvement in endurance performance. Um, just taking it like 30, 30 to 60 minutes beforehand. What, um, now I recommended, so I thought that a, a B complex potentially for athletes, I said a multivitamin to round out your nutrition in case you were deficient. Um, and I said vitamin D, especially if you're in the North, just for general immune function. There's some other studies out there in regarding how it can help actually performance and muscle. You know more about that than I do. Yep. Um, I don't know about choline though. What is, what is choline, the function there? What does that help with? So choline plays a function in both uh, nerve health and uh, muscle transmission. So you remember how I was talking about the focus factor with, with some supplements before. So choline is one of those, those focus factor supplements. It's one of the few ingredients that can cause uh, the uh, blood brain barrier and cause an increase in transmission and synapses and kind of keep that focus factor. Um, so sources of choline, um, I mean, it'd be like eggs, uh, some meats and like, it's, it's, Estimated that like 90% of the, po just like general recommend or general population of the United States is deficient in choline, like 90%, which is a huge amount. Um, especially more for endurance athletes during endurance exercise, your choline pool gets depleted, but more importantly, like, well, the focus factor is important, but more importantly, choline plays a, a, a function in muscle contractions. So choline is converted to acetylcholine. Uh, when it gets in the body and acetylcholine is kind of like the stimulus for the nerve transmission to tell the muscle to be like, Hey, dummy contract. So I can keep on running. So as you like exercise, this choline pool can come depleted. And that's kind of when you can get like a brain fog. And then also you just, you might feel like, Hey man, my muscles just, they're not working quite like they should. We, I feel clunky. I don't feel efficient. And that could be, I mean, that could be to the choline depletion, or, I mean, it could be from, you know, lack of carbs too. I mean, it could be a couple different things. So that's, that's what choline kind of is. It helps with the focus factor okay. and then it helps with like uh, muscular contractions. And again, I recommend it because not only for health reasons and because most people are deficient in it to begin with. Are all of those products, now you have vitamin elite, uh, which I take. Um, I actually, I see a sports doc for my rehab. He basically takes care of all the professional sports teams in the area, a uh, guy I really respect. And uh, somehow I got in the door there, but I, uh, he was telling me to take a supplement or uh, multi and I brought in your product to show him the vitamin elite and he combed through it. Right. Yep. And he had said, he had said, you know what? Don't take my product. Take this product. <laughs> Because this guy thought of everything he said. Oh, everything. And, and this is from a guy that I highly, highly respect and has helped me a lot. Um, what are all these pro are all those in your vitamin elite? Like for the most part, is have all this been thought about? Like if you're gonna look for a one-stop shop, order the vitamin elite and you got your kind of covered? Yeah, pretty much because I mean I basically like when I vitamin elite took forever. Like it probably took me a year to like go through the whole formula on that one, because there are certain like micronutrient deficiencies that are more common in endurance athletes, um, that you want to address as far as like, say like for your B vitamins, uh, highly involved in energy and metabolism. And a lot of endurance athletes are deficient in their B vitamins. So we put, you know, we always go over the, the, the recommended amount because most multivitamins are meant for general populations. And a lot of these sports nutrition companies, 
just make it for the general population too. They may say it's for athletes, but it's not based on the amounts they use. So, but yeah, the short answer to your question is yes, everything was well thought out in the vitamin elite as far as first, what vitamins and minerals are most endurance athletes deficient in, and then what amount should we be putting there to address those deficiencies? And one last question I have then is what is your take on general iron consumption for the endurance athlete? Is it smart to have a small amount in a, in a multivitamin or take somewhat regularly as just a precautionary, or do you think it's only necessary if you've tested deficient? Oh, I mean, you just, you're looking at diet there too. So it really, it's really dependent on yeah. your diet. So you're going to see like anemia happening more of like, again, like a vegan population, perhaps mm -hmm. that's pretty common. I would say as a general recommendation, like if you're a, a meat loving American um, and you're, you know, you're getting plenty of meat or dairy sources, you're probably, you're probably not iron deficient. Um, I was actually just having this conversation the other day with one of the endurance athletes or endure elite athletes um, if they were iron deficient. So I sent her off to have a, a blood test. So if you're feeling like lethargic or sleepy, or you just don't feel all the energy, I mean, I think it's worth your time to have blood iron tested. If it is low, um, yeah, you probably should be taking uh, an iron supplement like uh, ferrous sulfate is the most, uh, the highest bioavailability supplement. And then depending on your gender and activity level, you would want to take, I think eight, eight milligrams daily for a man and then 18 milligrams daily for a woman. And the higher amount for the woman is just based on, you know, uh, menstruation and things like that. And then if you're really, really iron deficient, there's, there's protocols um, to help you get back up to normal that involve a, a ton of iron, like 975 milligrams a day to kind of get you back in the, where you want to be. Okay, cool. I was just curious. That satisfies my answer again. Yeah. <laughs> my last question for you today now is we've talked nutrition. We've talked pre-workout, both meal and pre-workout. We've talked intro workout and now recovery is kind of the big um, elephant in the room yep now backstory um but because i use all of this the endure elite products i use recovery elite yep. and i raced a 50k with about 5,000 feet of uh vert last oh, okay. summer and race morning i woke up and i pulled my bag out and i realized my sustain wasn't in there and i fueled with recovery elite for the 50k nice a, what was I missing out on? And then B, why is it so important to re, or I guess not as much why is it important to recover with certain things, but what do we need to be focused on right after a race for like the first one to 12 hours? What's bang for our buck there? Sure. So what, first, what you were missing, I probably, uh, well, honestly, you probably weren't missing too much. I mean, with the, with the recovery lead, you have the way isolate in there which is a really high form of protein. It's 90% pure, it's quick digesting and things like that. So, I mean, for some people that may have caused like GI distress during the workout. Um, and then you don't have all the same carbohydrates as you have like with sustainably. So, I mean, missing out, not too much, just that. And then some of the, like the electrolytes and then with the recovery, there's kind of, it's, it's, it's as the name implies, it's more, it's more recovery focused. So you have other ingredients in there that can help with the recovery. So, with, you know, immediately, what should you be doing immediately post-race or after, um, after a workout? I mean, two main goals after, like, say, a race. Replenish muscle glycogen as quickly as possible. Um, and then getting the correct amount of protein to, to stimulate something called muscle protein synthesis. So I think most people, like, there's this, there's this thought that 
protein equals recovery. That's all you need. And that's, that's, the, that's typically not true for endurance athletes. Protein or endurance athletes need both carbs and proteins after exercise. One again, to replenish muscle glycogen and two to kickstart muscle protein synthesis, which is muscle repair and recovery. So let's address protein first. You've heard about this anabolic window, like you need to have protein like immediately post-exercise to recoverly cover optimally. You don't. I mean, can you do it? Yeah. Is it going to hurt anything? No. <laughs> yeah. What's more important is like the total amount of protein you consume on a daily basis. And for this number, like the key number for endurance athletes is about uh, 1.2 to 1.8 grams per kilogram body weight daily. Again, depending on, you know, the intensity and duration of your exercise. And the more simple, simpler way to look at this is eat, you know, 30 grams of protein with every meal and then try to get another 15 to 20 grams in like snacks throughout the day. And that should probably pretty much have you, uh, you know, hitting your protein requirements where you can optimally recover and have those muscles repaired. With carbohydrates, um, it's the research has demonstrated that it's, muscles are more inclined to take up uh, basically the glucose to be converted to glycogen within like 30 minutes after exercise. So after exercise, yeah, you want to slam, you want to slam carbohydrates. Um, general recommendation here is 2.2 to 3.2 grams per pound body weight immediately after exercise. And like I said, that just, it's more inclined for the muscle to uptake it more quickly where it can be converted to, to glycogen and, you know, just uh, be ready to rock and roll the next day for the, for the most side, part outside of like muscle soreness and things like that. So is there a sliding scale with the duration and intensity of exercise or is it like recovery days, quality days, races, you hit that 30 window, minute window hard regardless? I think like you don't need like if you're going like, like on an easy 30 minute jog, like for recovery day, you, it's, it's not that much important to like, to, to slam that amount of carbohydrates. This is more like after really, really intense exercise and, and things like that. Okay. But again, like for the daily recommendations for carbohydrates, I would just stick with that on a daily basis, whether it's a hard day recovery day. And then after, you know, like a hard, a hard race, I mean, you may deplete Michael muscle glycogen pretty close to hundred percent. Whereas in like an easy day, you might deplete like 20% of that. So it's really, again, it's, it's intensity and duration, um, dependent with, with the recovery. But again, um, yeah, just to make things simple, general recommendations, like for carbs, six to 10 grams per kilogram body weight daily. And then protein, uh, like I said, the 1.2 to 1.6 grams per kilogram body weight. And that should have you pretty much covered in most situations to have you, you know, optimally recovered on a day to day basis. Now, when you see this after like a hard effort, are you, are you saying like you either need to eat a meal or get it through a supplement? It doesn't really matter. What if, what about those people that like, like for me, if I work out hard, I want nothing to do with food for like two hours. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't like, I just, I'm not interested. So a supplement, like a recovery leak down the hatch, that's fine enough to hold me over, even though maybe it's not fully replenishing until I can get to a meal. That's fine. Oh yeah. Th yeah. That's absolutely fine. Cause I totally realized that part too. Like I don't want to eat a hamburger after I get done with a race or like an interval session. Like for me with like recovery, I mean, you can absolutely take it every day if you want to after workout. But for me, like I usually save recovery, uh, for after like a hard, like interval day or after a race day. And then, you know, after, you know, an easy day, I might just, you know, slam a banana and have a cup of cottage cheese or a protein shake or something like that. So. Yeah. I noticed I really crave my recovery elite. 
after hard, hard efforts. It's all I can think about on my recovery run on the way home or my, my cool down. So yeah, it works that way. Um, as we work on closing this thing down, um, I'm curious as to what's next for you, Mr. Mosman, and what's next for Enduralite. Oh. Any, are, we, are we just keeping the great products rolling or we have other plans or what's the deal? Great products. We, um, yeah, like I said, I mean, this, there's always been a few key objectives with Enduralite and this is kind of how we, we operate the business. Like first and foremost is to keep on generating like the content we're doing that's that's our main focus with the company like we're like it sounds like total like uh, a line but we're we're not a transaction based company at all i never started in Duralite for that for the most part i started it to be a content based company where people can basically come to the site and get good information that isn't biased or fabricated just to sell a product like you'll probably see like on our instagram and social media and even on our blog we'll rarely talk about a product. That's just not our jam. We would much rather educate and then let leave the decision up to the people that are, are looking at stuff like that. So that's the first and foremost agenda on Enduralite is to um, keep generating good content that people will get a lot of knowledge from. Second, um, just to give a lot of money away. One of our other objectives is to basically support the communities that we live in. So the majority of profits we make from Enduralite go to like trail building and other uh, less than fortunate like organizations that help with like outdoor activities, trail building kids and things like that. So we're going to put a huge focus on that uh, this oh. year and the next coming years. And then, yeah, third and, and far down the line is just trying to keep on cranking out like innovative products. Like I have, I have no desire in, to to make anything that's been done before. Like, I don't, I don't want to do it. That's not interesting to me. I like, I make something, I want to make it completely different. I want to make sure it works and that people will get a benefit out of it. Like I never started in Durley to make a lot of money or to make a quick buck. I started it again for the education and having innovative products that work. So with that being said, uh, I have a few products in the works. I don't, I don't remember if I told you guys about this, but I'm, I'm working on a, a transdermal carbohydrate patch, which, which should be pretty slick if I can get it figured Ooh. out. I'm so curious about that. Could you just give us a quick snapshot of what that might be? Because that just blows my mind and I love it. Yeah, so it's, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a, it's a patch that you put on your skin that would infuse uh, carbohydrates through your skin into the bloodstream, into the muscles. So if you're one of these people that really can't eat or drink anything during racing, this could... This could um, really be beneficial um you know people haven't done before because they haven't figured it out but there's a because carbohydrates by themselves won't absorb through the skin you just can't rub sugar on your skin and expect it to absorb through your body <laughs> there's something you can combine it with that will hopefully have a significant effect as far as how much carbohydrate can get absorbed and then i gotta jump through a bunch of like hoops with the fda being a transdermal patch so i mean that project's probably oh i would say who knows two to three years out maybe maybe more maybe less at what rate how many carbs do you think you can put through off a patch well that's what we're going to do the clinical research on so first you know i have to we're basically in the final stages of product development and then what we'll do is we'll almost get like a ballistic type gels and we can we can test that to see the rate of carbohydrate that passes through the skin get through that and then we can start human trials to see well first we'll test for safety which there there shouldn't be any problems and then we could actually detect uh, the elevation in blood glucose to determine how much uh, carbohydrate could get through the skin. Have you slapped one of these things on yourself yet? 
Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, and like I, I feel like it works pretty darn good. But again, that could be a, a huge placebo effect. Who knows? That's why we always. Which is uh, nothing wrong with that. No, there, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But this again, this is why we test all our products before we release them. We want to make sure they work, as opposed to just you know putting out garbage and just saying, "Hey, this works without any evidence." Couldn't that be like a huge game changing? thing for this industry like like mind-blowingly large for you and your company if i understand if this were to work and to take off yeah it would be it would be monumental i mean my goal with this whole thing is to put an end to gels like i hate gels they're so gross just <laughs> i mean from any front just from a taste standpoint or palate standpoint that'd be huge or just from a a bulk and weight of carrying objects on course that would be huge like survival rations that would be huge there's so many reasons it would be awesome yeah there's there's a lot of applications even outside of sports nutrition that it could work really well for um so yeah at this point i'm like i'm 70 percent confident that it will work um it should work really well but then it's just yeah it's going through all the red tape of the fda and all that stuff to make it happen um gosh and then what else do we like I said, we have, gosh, right now, probably like five to 10 other products in the work we'll probably come out with, with some type of bar later down the line. And then we may go back around and do like the X versions of some of the other products. Um, and just, yeah, just really try to keep things, keep things innovated, innovative. You know, before in the early days, we did have like the whey protein, we had a beetroot product, we had some of these other things, but that really... You know, truth be told, like I just did that because it was the popular thing to do. And I just looked at myself in the mirror one day and it was like, well, there's really nothing innovative about this. Like I just I want to stick with innovative products. That's this like key for me. That's that's what really interests me. And, you know, if I can't develop a superior product that works, uh, I'm not going to do it just to sell something. How do you not respect that? Right? <laughs> just the way I was built, you know, Iowa farm boy in me. I wish we could just end this podcast with like 10 different 60 second brain bombs, but I know <laughs> that would be a lot, but they are on your Instagram page. I love those. That's what spawned the idea to reach out to you. You did a fantastic five minute segment on what did you do it on? Lac uh, lactate. Oh, uh, the, the lactate threshold. threshold. Yeah. It's fantastic. Oh, thank you. Uh huh. We talk about this a lot and lactic acid is the term thrown around when it should be really your lactate and lactic threat. Anyway, we've done episodes on that too. So when I saw that, that struck the uh, light bulb to say, we need to get mad on this podcast. Uh, so we appreciate you being here. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. It's, it's been a lot of fun. This will be one. Um, from time to time, I listen back to ours very infrequently because I have to listen all the way through it when I edit it. But this will be one that I'm going to refer to myself. And I think I'm going to put tags on this one for like for carb info, go to 140 and for recovery, you know, that kind of stuff, because this is this one will get added to the uh, to the index, I think. Nice, man. Yeah. Lots of information. I have one. I have one final burning question for you. Yeah. Then, what uh, what percent commitment can we get from you on this beer mile? That's what I want to know. <laughs> Zero, twenty, ninety. Oh, any? I would. I would say ten percent, just because I have to go somewhere. Oh. Yeah, I gotta. I gotta oh. take one of my kiddos for a little medical appointment back to Denver over the Fourth of July. So I, I would probably say slim none. But I'll. Um, I'll send you guys the YouTube video of my beer mile. I oh, drink, I would like that. Yeah, I drank some uh, Bud Light Platinums, I believe it yeah. was. Yeah. So we did it. We did it in style. 
I will say that you we have a two day window, July third and July fourth, in which it can be done. So uh, maybe I'm just going to bump you up to twenty percent, so I feel better. About if, you, it. if you can get Ryan Woods to do it, I'll try to do it. Okay. Yeah. You even have time probably to to come up with some sort of transdermal alcohol patch that you could do in lieu of of bottles. Oh, that would be awesome. That's a great. <laughs> that's a great idea. Yeah. Screw this. It may not be board. beneficial for society. Well, no, I'm thinking like a bigger picture now, like an alcohol-based, like transdermal patch. You'd be, whoa. <laughs> it's, that's IP right now that we're discussing. This yeah, is my IP. You'll get, you'll get 90% of royalties. Perfect. That's all I ask. <laughs> oh, man. Good stuff. No, I got nothing. I got nothing left for you. This has been actually really informative. It's been good getting to know you, Matt. Uh, now I know you're not only a, a genius when it comes to supplementation and products, but you're also a damn fast runner too. Oh, so it's fun, fun to learn. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, guys. It's like I said, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been our pleasure. And I think that every listener, whether they agree with all of it or not, will take a lot out of this. This is this is now must have listening for for the audience out there. So thank you so much for being open and forthcoming about this all. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks guys. We'll talk to you soon. Have a good day.